we have this ongoing longitudinal study of our MBA alums, and it really allows us to look at what the experiences of those folks are and how they are influenced by things like race and gender. And so one of the questions that we ask people is when they started out post business school. So this is sort of still early career, but it's people who come to HBS have have worked for at least a couple of years. So they're still early career, but they're not fresh out of college when they're out of business school. So we ask them sort of thinking back to that time, you know, to what extent did you expect your race and your gender to separate questions? to either kind of be an advantage to your career, be a disadvantage or be neutral. And then we ask them from where you are now in your career, has your race and gender, have they been an advantage, a disadvantage, or has it had kind of no effect? And so we did see this gap with women who, when they took the survey, were in their kind of mid-career moment. They reported expecting less of a disadvantage around gender than they said they were actually experiencing. Women of color had a little bit lower (laughs) expectations. There still was a jump where kind of what they were experiencing was a bit worse than they expected, but they had what we might call, unfortunately, more realistic expectations than white women. And this is a particular population, you know, it's hard to sort of necessarily fully extrapolate from that. But, you know, to my mind, it does suggest that unfortunately, women of color in a lot of ways probably are just a bit more tuned in to kind of the unfairness that's baked into our workplaces in all kinds of ways. Welcome back to The Fix, where every week we interview thought leaders, world leaders, academics, business leaders, activists, and ordinary people who are taking action to build workplaces that truly work for everyone. Before we start, just a quick ask from me. If you love our podcast, then please hit subscribe now wherever you get your podcast and leave a review. You can also sign up to our newsletter and get in touch at www.thefixpodcast.org. Even if women advance early in their careers and make it to managerial level, there's no escaping inequality. As I outlined in my book, The Fix, Overcoming the Invisible Barriers That Hold Women Back at Work, most women between the age of 35 and 45 will find this time in their professional lives the most difficult. It's the midpoint in women's careers, and it's when organizations have to decide who best fits the ideal leadership standard which in most workplaces still tends to reflect white men. For example, the Women in the Workplace 2018 study conducted by McKinsey in partnership with LeanIn.org surveyed more than 64,000 employees, and it finds that women enter corporations at roughly similar rates to men, at about 31% to 36% respectively. However, by the time they reach managerial level, women's representation drops off to about 26%, whereas men's increases to about 52%. This is when the effects of inequality start to take hold and become evident in the unequal representation of men and women in leadership positions. Attrition does not explain this difference, but gender inequality does. Research finds that men and women leave organisations at similar rates and they have similar intentions to remain in their organisations. Very few women and men report any intention to leave work for family reasons. As Michelle detailed in her book, the main difference between men and women isn't in their attitudes or intentions towards work. The main difference is that women are less likely to be hired or promoted into managerial roles. These challenges exist whether a woman has children or not. But the challenges are intensified for mothers who have to overcome additional invisible barriers created from the incompatibility of motherhood and working life for some. 
For many women, the midpoint in their careers is about enduring this inequality. Having been in the workforce for 10 years or a little more, this is the point at which a woman's advancements might start to stall and the point at which she might start to be weighed down by experiences of day-to-day sexism, exclusion, male favouritism and marginalisation. All of this is why on today's episode we're going to unpack the specific challenges that women face at the midpoint in their careers. For the discussion we're joined by Colleen Ammerman, the Director of the Gender Initiative at Harvard Business School and co-author along with Boris Groisberg of Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers that Still Hold Women Back at Work. We asked Colleen to share why the barriers to women's advancement at work are greatest around this midpoint in their careers. What we've heard consistently for women is there's this pattern of early in her career, the assessment is more objective, right? And what they would tell us is, I knew that there was, you know, not an even playing field. And these are often women who started their careers maybe in the 80s or 90s. I could see it wasn't an even playing field, but we were all being evaluated on things that were a little bit more measurable. And I succeeded just by putting my head down and like being so good at my job that it was kind of inevitable that I would rise through the ranks. Now, as I started to move further into my career, it becomes a lot more subjective, like subjective views of what good looks like, which typically is like what already is in leadership. And they told us, especially even more senior in my career, I became the only woman in the room. And there were more of these questions about like, oh, do I quote unquote fit in right with that next level of leadership? So that was a really consistent pattern. And what we heard from them is that that really starts to come to the fore in mid-career. So it's kind of emerges there and becomes really salient and actually continues. Now, one thing in mid-career that is really particular to that stage is around parenting and around the motherhood penalty. And that is really something that just is so salient at mid-career and is really specific to that stage. A lot of women that we've talked to, senior women, said that they're talking about once they've gotten past that mid-career moment, regardless of kind of the age that their kids are, they have more autonomy over their time. And so they can kind of manage their work-life balance or work-life integration. But at mid-career, if you're in prime parenting years and it's a time when There's a lot of expectation on you, but you don't have as much autonomy as you'll have later in your career. So it's just a really tough time for everyone, actually. And I think what's important to understand is that this is actually a challenge for all working parents, but we talk about it as if it's only a challenge for women. And that really reinforces the notion that women's primary role is caregiving. (laughs) I mean, there's a pernicious way that this kind of just like feeds into this gender stereotype that kind of locks inequality in place. So I think for mid-career, what makes it so difficult and where you see women kind of getting pushed off the leadership track is this kind of confluence of this general pattern of as women move up the ladder, they become more scarce. So some of these like stricter scrutiny, expectations, et cetera, start to really impact how people view them and the opportunities they get. And then you combine it with the prime parenting years and all of the beliefs and stereotypes we have about women who are parents. It just kind of creates this perfect storm where women at that mid-career moment are really like fighting this uphill battle. Inequality is particularly challenging for women managers because of the continued acceptance and denial of negative gender norms at work. For example, according to one study, about 82% of 350 male CEOs surveyed agreed that the key barrier women face at work is a lack of general or supervisory experience. However, only 47% of the 461 female leaders who were surveyed agree that that's a key barrier. The difference in these two findings comes down to the widely held patriarchal belief that women are simply less capable than men. And this shows up in comments like she needs time to round out her experience or she needs more time to prove herself when they're levelled at women who are just experienced as their male colleagues. 
in a situation like this, experience isn't the issue. The issue for the women in that situation is that they have to overcome the widespread belief that women are just not as competent as men. Here, Colleen shares the scrutiny that women at the midpoint in their careers often encounter when it comes to performance. We call it unhelpful attention, but it really it's the kind of hyper scrutiny or being held to different standards, as you're citing, the way that our stereotypes and beliefs about the ways that women are or should be. So that really emerged as a clear theme. And so we thought, well, this all really, in a sense, comes under this rubric of a certain kind of attention that's being paid to women at this career stage that right is really unhelpful because it's rooted in assumptions and stereotypes. And there's a disparity, again, like in terms of the scrutiny that women are experiencing that male peers may not. And we felt like that was important because one thing that a lot of these women told us was that one of the underlying reasons that mid-career gender bias is so pernicious and so impactful is because mid-career is just a really important time in your career. And when you are kind of in the spotlight, when you're being judged on more than just sort of the output that you might be judged on early in career. A lot of them kind of told us, look, in those early career years, certainly gender bias still exists. But, you know, they said in our experience, you're really being judged on things that are more measurable and more objective and feels a little bit more like an even playing field. In mid-career, you start to be judged on how you interface with clients, perhaps, or your quote unquote executive presence and all of these softer, what we call softer skills. And so they told us this is a time when eyes are on you. It's a proving ground. It's a little bit of a make or break time if you get kind of branded like not a superstar in mid-career. It's really hard to bounce back from that. So this sort of unhelpful attention, this having this layer of scrutiny, walking this tight rope of, oh, I don't want to be perceived as too quote unquote aggressive, but I also don't want to be perceived as too maternal and nurturing, right? Because I can get backlash or both of those things, you know, they found particularly stressful. So, I mean, that was kind of the underlying reason, you know, for everyone in mid-career, it's a time when you are really being evaluated around who you are and the way you show up at work. And then for women, there's this whole other layer that makes it that much more difficult. Often around the midpoint of their careers, women are hit with the reality of taking on two conflicting roles. That is, having to live up to the ideal worker as well as the ideal mother. According to typical gender stereotypes, a man's primary role in life is to go to work and provide for his family, while a woman's primary role is to produce and raise children. The expectation is that women who work will still be the perfect mother, caretaker and wife, as well as the ideal worker. Men, however, are largely expected to only fulfil their one role as breadwinner. And while the number of women in the workforce has increased, workplaces still do the bare minimum to accommodate parents, making it incredibly challenging for women in particular to manage both roles. Workplaces still require men to live up to the breadwinner role, which makes it impossible for men to accommodate fatherhood without having it detrimentally impact their careers and well-being. Inequality isn't a women's issue, it's a workplace issue. Here, Colleen shares some of the other ways women experience inequality at the midpoint in their careers. So unfair assumptions are like our beliefs about women and their suitability for leadership and their competence, etc. One of them is this very well documented in the research literature phenomenon where women with children really are discriminated against in terms of hiring, promotion and pay on the basis of a belief that women with children are less committed to their work than women without children or that men in general, actually fathers tend to get 
a premium. That's some other research. And then other assumptions emerged in the data we collected. So that's a really big one. And it actually does also affect women without kids because of beliefs about the fact that at this mid-career time, which is basically people in their 30s and 40s, beliefs that they're future parenting. But there's other things that emerge that really are all rooted in these assumptions that women basically are less committed to work and less competent. So one of the others that emerged was a woman told us about this strong belief in her company that the high pressure high profile, high status jobs, women were not suited for them. And it was just kind of this ambient cultural in the water kind of sense that everyone sort of agreed to. So I think that those are really assumptions that are just deeply rooted in what we as a culture believe women to be in terms of what researchers would call these descriptive stereotypes, believing that women are naturally more focused on family and personal relationships than men are as compared to work that women are naturally less interested in leadership. And so you can see how then those assumptions really come into play when it comes to this kind of unfair attention and strict scrutiny. Because if you have already a belief that women are not really cut out for leadership, of course, when there's a woman who seems to be on a leadership track, bring this hyper scrutiny because you're skeptical in the first place about that. So that really does I think, feed into that phenomenon that we call unfair attention. And then relationships, we call this access to networks. And again, rooted in some of these same, not necessarily consciously held, sometimes conscious, but often this is just, again, it's kind of in the water sort of assumptions people are make without even realizing it. So, and again, very well documented in the research literature, women having less access to relationships with senior colleagues who are most often men. So, that can really make it difficult for you to climb the ladder. And again, that often is rooted in a sense that, again, women are not necessarily interested in leadership, that men who are senior leaders don't necessarily see themselves in junior women. They see themselves in junior men. But women, again, because of the associations that we have about women and who they are and who they should be, there's not often that natural relationship building. Research by Fatima Tresh, Dr. Georgina Ransley-Demura and Abigail Player from the University of Kent found that male job applicants with a high level of leadership potential are rated as a better employment prospect than a female job applicant with a proven leadership track record. We assume that men are capable and have what it takes to do the job, so we don't weigh actual experience as heavily. It's just not as important as it is when we're assessing women. This is how inequality is invisible to most of us. Importantly, though, not all women's experiences are the same, as Colleen explains. There are differences for women of color. For instance, in terms of unfair attention, there's research that shows that Black women are penalized differently for being assertive. So we know, of course, tons of literature about this competence versus likability trade-off and that women act assertively, they get this reputational hit. And there's research that suggests that Black women, they do get it, but not in the same way. And actually what happens for Black women specifically is that when they're seen as being assertive in service of something that is related to like the organization and it's for kind of the greater good, then they don't get that backlash. But if they're perceived as doing it for their own career gain, then they do. There's also some research that shows that Black women in particular are penalized more harshly for mistakes than white women. Those are just a couple of examples. There's other research, but there are ways that all of these forms of bias and discrimination sort of ramify for women of color are either kind of different or they get extra penalties. So it's very much there in the literature. Often without even knowing it, women internalise the inequality they experience by believing they're simply not good enough. One of the reasons this happens is that we deny inequality exists and we encourage women to believe that if they tick every box, they will get ahead. 
So when a woman doesn't advance because of systemic barriers and inequality, they believe they simply don't have what it takes to lead. Here Collins shares the critical role that expectations play in shaping our experiences of inequality. We have this ongoing longitudinal study of our MBA alums, and it really allows us to look at what the experiences of those folks are and how they are influenced by things like race and gender. And so one of the questions that we ask people is when they started out post-business school, so this is sort of still early career, but it's people who come to HBS have, have worked for at least a couple of years, so they're still early career but they're not fresh out of college when they're out of business school. So we asked them sort of thinking back to that time, you know, to what extent did you expect your race and your gender to separate questions to either kind of be an advantage to your career, be a disadvantage or be neutral. And then we asked them from where you are now in your career, has your race and gender, have they been an advantage, a disadvantage, or has it had kind of no effect? And so we did see this gap with women who, when they took the survey, were in their kind of mid-career moment, they reported expecting less of a disadvantage around gender than they said they were actually experiencing. Women of color had a little bit lower <laughs> expectations. There still was a jump where kind of what they were experiencing was a bit worse than they expected, but they had what we might call, unfortunately, more realistic expectations than white women. And this is a particular population, you know, it's hard to sort of necessarily fully extrapolate from that. But, you know, to my mind, it does suggest that unfortunately, women of color, in a lot of ways, probably are just a bit more tuned in to kind of the unfairness that's baked into our workplaces in all kinds of ways. White women may learn that a little bit later, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to kind of think about that. But it was interesting to us. And this is what's important to remember is that this is a population of people with Harvard Business School MBA. So this is a population that's very smart, driven, accomplished, career-oriented, has had this huge privilege of coming to an elite business school. So they're saying, look, I feel like the playing field is definitely not as level as I thought it was going to be when I got to this point in my career. Finally, Colleen shares the actions that each of us can take to remove the specific barriers that women encounter at the midpoint in their careers. This notion of everyone being able to be a change agent within their sphere of influence, whatever that is, right? Whether that is as a CEO, then you have a pretty big sphere of influence, but even an individual contributor has a sphere of influence. And so really trying to think about what we can do to be a change agent within whatever ways that we have that opportunity to influence. So I think for women, I mean, certainly one reason we write articles like this and we wrote the book is we do think it's helpful for women to understand what may be happening and and so as not to kind of internalize it. We think that's really important to say, you may be kind of bumping up against these barriers and let's just be real about the fact that these are systemic barriers. It's not about your own lack of competence or something that's wrong with you. So we do think that's important because just kind of giving women that lens to say, okay, I don't need to internalize this as a personal failing. These are systemic barriers and systemic biases. So we hope that it's helpful. And I think certainly for individual women, I mean, the best advice that I can give is to the extent that you can, when you are looking at an opportunity, whether it's a promotion within your company to move into a different team or a new job, really vet the environment, which is not easy to do, right? It can be hard to kind of get under the hood and understand the culture. But time and time again, one of the things that we have heard, not just for this article, but in other interviews with senior women that we've done for our research, so many of them say, look, at the end of the day, you have got to get yourself into environments that do support you, that do capacitate you to be a leader. And so if you're on a team where you're being diminished, right, if you're in a company where it's going to be an, an uphill battle, clearly they don't see women as future leaders, you know, the best thing that you can do is figure out how to get into an environment that is going to support you. So that's kind of the advice to women. But 
I think what is really important is for men in particular to think about how they can be change agents, be co-conspirators and take action. And there's research that shows that when men speak up about gender bias or advocate for inclusive policies, it actually carries an extra weight. Their words are taken a bit more seriously. So it's a huge opportunity for men to raise their hand and sort of say, for instance, I'm seeing a pattern where it looks like in this department, women are not being promoted at the same rate or on a team if they feel like there's an incident that seems biased to them, taking those opportunities to kind of speak up, which I understand isn't always easy. I mean, that can be challenging. So definitely want to acknowledge that. But I mean, a story that I always tell is actually an HBS alum that we interviewed for the book who talked about seeing a list of candidates that were going to be phone screened for entry-level jobs at his firm. He was in finance and seeing that there were no women on this list of like 50 people. And he was not a senior leader. He didn't run the firm. He was I kind of mid-career himself, but he noticed this and was disturbed. And so what was really great about what he did was that he didn't just sort of say, oh, that's too bad. That seems, you know, problematic, but he took it upon himself to go to HR and ask, hey, what's going on here? Like, why aren't there any women on this list? And you know, he got a response that people often get when they ask this question is, well, we can't find any, which he didn't really buy that explanation. And so he just went out, he actually teamed up with another colleague, a woman and went out and found some candidate. And so what's great about this story, I think, is that he, you know, wasn't his role, didn't work in HR, wasn't the leader of the firm, but he just saw a problem and said, I can be the one to raise this and try to proactively find a solution. And ultimately, they did change some processes with hiring at that firm. I don't know exactly how they're doing now, but he definitely made a difference, right, in terms of long term. So I just think that's a great example of, again, an individual contributor who said, I can constructively point out that there seems to be a gender issue here and suggest a way to do something about it. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. I really hope that you all found this conversation with Colleen as illuminating as I did. Colleen shared with us some key actions that she believes we need to take to remove the barriers women face at work. The first is to acknowledge that inequality is a workplace issue. We need to fix the processes and the systems that create inequality by removing the biases in how we hire, develop, reward and promote women. Second, any manager can commit to being objective and to making decisions that recognise and don't perpetuate their own individual biases. This starts with becoming aware of how our beliefs about competence and leadership might negatively impact the judgments that we make about women at work. We might not be able to remove unconscious bias from our human brains, but we can solve for bias in our systems and our processes so that we can then confidently use those systems and processes to eliminate bias from any ultimate decisions. Finally, as Colleen shared, every single one of us can be a change agent in our own sphere of influence. You may have the power to advocate for yourself and your colleagues and for greater fairness within your business. If you're in the room when decisions are being made in your workplace, you might be able to challenge the status quo if you can see that it's limiting women or other marginalised groups from advancing. You could ask, Is this a requirement that's used for promotion decisions? Why are we not asking the same of men? Why do we have women being asked to do more before being considered for promotion? Why do we think that mothers can't lead? Why do we not have more women leaders already? If you're ever unsure about whether a situation is an example of an invisible barrier for women, consider if the situation is something a man would be likely to experience. Bringing light to the invisible barriers and asking why is a necessary first step to dismantling systemic inequalities. It's how we weed out unconscious bias in our systems and processes, dismantle those harmful gender stereotypes and ultimately protect our organisations against 
making business decisions which perpetuate inequality and can, in some circumstances, even be unlawful. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. A quick one before you go, if you love our podcast and you want to hear more, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning into our episode. And if you're interested in partnering with us or maybe being a guest on the show, then reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.